Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, something, we had a, a really nice increase in um, Patreon supporters recently, and I wanted to acknowledge some of the new folks who have signed up on my Patreon account. I've never done that before, really, by name, but I thought, you know, there was this nice uh, inflow of people on that, and so I wanted to acknowledge you guys. Um, so, uh, thank you to uh, Neil McGettigan, Python Swoop. Eric Herner, who increased his, uh, his uh, monthly pledge uh, this month. Uh, Pierce McCann, Pixie Perfect also bumped up hers, and uh, welcome Heather Melling to my Patreon campaign. So thank you very much, you guys, uh, for uh, showing me some love. <laughs> and um, also I wanted to say just uh, on the ongoing uh, Scientology Basics series, I am hard at work on the next one in that series. This one's going to be covering the, uh, the eight dynamics, and I'm finding myself having to get into some philosophical questions and looking into some things uh, where Hubbard might have gotten some of his ideas from for this. So um, that is coming together nicely, and hopefully I'll have that done this week, but if not, then, uh, then next week for sure. Uh, okay, guys, so let's go ahead and get on with answering your questions. TJB fan. How in the world did LRH allow himself to be sealed off from all of Scientology management so thoroughly by David Miscavige and Pat Broker? LRH was a pretty savvy fellow, so it should have been a red flag when practically the entirety of international management was declared. Seems to me he would have had someone's head on a pike for cutting all his comm lines for more than just the time it took to get himself to a safer location. By all I read, David Mayo was his most trusted friend who actually saved his life from illness. You don't just blindly accept someone removing all your appointed officers from the highest positions the minute you leave the vicinity. This is a mystery shrouded and clouded in history. I do not believe for a minute that LRH would himself have declared all of those hundreds of senior Sea Org members. Can you shed any light on how Broker and Miscavige isolated LRH and did LRH really trust those two that much? All right, well, your first mistake is putting your thinking and rationality into L. Ron Hubbard's head because uh, in his later years, L. Ron Hubbard was not a sane, rational person. Now, it could be argued that L. R. H. Hubbard was not a sane, rational person for quite a few years before that, too. And, uh, and I don't know, you know, I, I, I think he, you know, had, was a rational person. He just was a pathological liar and a bit of a megalomaniac, um, you know, and, and if you want to throw labels around. But Hubbard was, was gradually through the 70s um, and definitely into the 80s was, had an ongoing, and this is, all of what I'm about to say is according to eyewitnesses who worked with him, uh, whose work I have read or who I have spoken to directly. So I wasn't there. So everything about him that I know from this time period was, uh, was secondhand, but this is the information I can give you. Um, he, he was not a pleasant person to be around. He was not a kindly, beneficent man. And often, uh, especially in, in about 1975 forward, I guess, you know, roughly, 
um, he began devolving into a, a, a very heavy paranoia. Now again, this goes back earlier as far as paranoia goes. I mean, all the way back to the conspiracy theories of the 60s and how everybody was against him. But this really started becoming a thing within even his inner circle where messengers and Sea Org members, uh, you know, became suspect, became people who could you know, on a, on a whim, on the, on the slightest provocation, could be, could be out, out of his circle, out of his life, gone, just like that. So this was not a guy who had a lot of loyalty or trust or faith in the people around him if they managed to piss him off or set him off. And it was that characteristic of Hubbard that Miscavige and Broker were able to play on in order to control him to a degree, to get him to sign the orders they needed signed or give, him, give them the authority that they needed in order to carry out the, you know, sort of uh, mass executions, you could say, figuratively, of course. I'm not saying that they, that they actually killed people, but, you know, getting rid of people by declaring them suppressive or kicking them out of the church entirely was not a, uh, it, well, it was not a, a, an entirely impossible task, um, given that David Miscavige and Pat Broker were the ones who controlled what information L. Ron Hubbard saw from the reports, written reports, that were sent to him when he was in isolation. But even before that, when he was around, his messengers were really his whole, you know, connection to the outside world. And the amount of information that went to him was not, it was not like he was getting fully briefed by people walking in and talking to him all the time, and he was totally in the know on what was going on. He had a very, very tight, small circle of people, and if they said the wrong thing to him, if they told him things he didn't want to hear, or gave him bad news without a solution, or, you know, whatever was going to fit whatever mood he was in at that moment, and he had lots of different moods, swings, lots of bad days, bad moods. If they didn't tailor the information to f suit that, then they were out, right? And this, would, and this is even messengers who had been around him for quite some time. But you try to bring in new messengers or new people, and they'd be blown away in the first day, right? So, uh, so, so people weren't, you know, if they weren't around him and they didn't know him and know how to deal with him, uh, then they could get in a lot of trouble. In fact, everybody who was around him did get in a lot of trouble all the time. But I'm talking about a lot of trouble where they get, where they're out. You know, they're not even around Hubbard anymore. Not even around his his communication uh, lines, right? As you said, his comm lines, the Scientology term. Um, so, you know, you kind of get the idea that Hubbard was not in his right mind, very paranoid, very uh, freaked out about people working against him, working against Scientology, and always looking for enemies. So if somebody presented him an enemy on a silver platter and said, you know, the, and even to a degree, if you can kind of get behind the logic of this, the higher up the enemy they could present to Hubbard, the better. Because if you could present proof to Hubbard in whatever form you were going to present it in that he would accept as proof, again, not, 
not a fully rational person, but if you could show him that somebody like David Mayo was actually working against him or had gone bad and gone to the enemy side, then Hubbard would use that to explain, oh, this is why we've been having trouble for the last 10 years or the last five years or whatever. This is why that project totally floundered under this guy because, you know, he was just a bad apple the whole time. And somehow he was so clever and sneaky that, you know, even I, L. Ron Hubbard, didn't see it, right? I, like That would be the kind of logic that would be going around in Hubbard's head as to why he could, you know, sign off on getting rid of somebody like David Mayo, who was fully dedicated to the cause, who was, was contributory to the technology of Scientology, because apparently over those last years, uh, through the 70s uh, and into the 80s, Hubbard wasn't even writing most of the tech, uh, apparently, and I'm going to find out a lot more about that. But from what I've been reading recently from people who were there, I'm finding out that Hubbard was, was pretty disconnected from his subject matter, even, uh, to one degree or another. And um, again, it's a matter of, of, of filtration. It's not like he didn't do Scientology in his later years. What I'm saying is that the information that was being given to him by the people around him was, only, was one, information that he would tolerate, and two, information that they could spin in such a way that he wouldn't blow up on them and send them to the RPF for giving them bad news or something like that. So a lot of eggshells, a lot of walking around on eggshells around him. Uh, so that was kind of Hubbard's mindset, and that was why Hubbard, uh, Miscavige and Broker were able to get away with what they got away with. Um, if you came into a situation where you were going to become a messenger for Hubbard and a trusted person in that inner circle, and your goal was personal power, and, and you were ruthless enough to take out all the other people around you because you didn't care about them, and you wanted them, and if they got in your way, they were going to be gone, then that was a, that was a great opportunity uh, to be able to pull that off, and that is what Miscavige did. So, uh, there you go. Ben Johnson. Everyone knows about Sigmund Freud's interest in bananas, cigars, and your repressed love for mommy and hatred of daddy, but LRH turned his crazy up to 11 and directed all of his fire at mommy dearest. For me, Dianetics always comes to a screeching halt when I get to the uterine memories. Thanks to L. Ron's genius, we now know that our reactive minds are packed full of engrams we received while in the womb. Memories of our parents fighting, our mother's repeated infidelities, our mother's flatulence, and the countless times she tried to abort us. Happy Mother's Day. How often did in utero engrams come up in auditing? I don't think I'd want to work through a uterine memory of my mother having a backseat quickie with her lover. Begin at the beginning, the only way out is through. Ooh, can I go now? All right, Ben, thanks for the colorful question there. Um, not often. You know, uh, the prenatals, as they're called in Dianetics, you know, the memories that are from when the person was still in the womb, uh, which Hubbard claims was still a, you know, a viable area of memory and, and cognition for people, um, and, and a source of, of engrammic content. In other words, um, incidents could occur to a fetus 
that or an embryo which would cause pain and unconsciousness, right? You, you hit the mother, she has an accident, or even having sacs or, um, you know, various other things that go on with, uh, with women who are pregnant could cause trouble for this embryo or this fetus. And so it would then start out life being born with these painful uh, engrams in its memory or in its recall. And if words had been said during the time of those painful incidents, then those words could have a reactive adverse effect on the, on the baby and on the, on the person through the rest of their life. So this is why in Dianetics, you know, they're all about silent births and being quiet around pregnant women and this kind of thing. Um, but for all of the, you know, nonsense that Hubbard talked about in graphic detail in, the, in Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, um, the, the prenatals, prenatal incidents, didn't really come up much in the course of Dianetics auditing. Over, the, over time, as, as Hubbard developed Scientology, he started pushing that it was actually past life incidents that were far more traumatic and had far more effect on, on people than, uh, than prenatal incidents. So that would be the stress of Scientology auditing is going back to past life stuff. And of course, as we know, and this was within two years of Dianetics being published that Hubbard was saying this. By 1952 or 53, he was saying, yeah, the, the prenatal stuff, that's you know, yeah, that's real, that exists, you can find those things, but, but that's not really what's messing you up. What's messing you up is when you were blowing up planets 30 million years ago, or you were being implanted, you know, with these, you know, heavy electronic, you know, curtains of energy uh, 57 million years ago on the planet, you know, Arxlychus or something, right? This is, that's the heavy stuff, that's the stuff that's messing you up this, this lifetime. So that would be, um, you know, then, then Dianetics all through the 1950s or Scientology auditing was really pushing on that. In modern times, you'll have people mainly running prenatals as introductory uh, Dianetic auditing, right? If, if it comes up. I mean, nobody's going to like try to shoot you into a prenatal because the auditor in Dianetics kind of takes whatever, whatever the person says and, and sort of runs with it, right? In a Dianetic session, the auditor is asking the preclear, uh, you know, find an incident of pain and unconsciousness that you can comfortably confront or something like that. And the person goes, oh yeah, well, there was this time that I was, you know, 10 years old and I got hit in the head with a brick and you go, okay, great. And you go through that a few times. And then if that doesn't resolve and the person's not like, oh my God, I don't have headaches anymore. If, if they're still, oh, you know, I don't really feel so great about this. And you go, okay, well, is there an earlier similar time that you experience pain and unconsciousness. And the guy goes, oh, sure, yeah, well, there was this time when I was three and I hit my head on the, on the stairs and it was kind of like that time I got hit in the head with the brick and you go, okay, and you run through that a few times. And if that doesn't, you know, bring all, you know, happiness and joy to the person, then is there an earlier similar time? And that's when you might end up in some kind of, you know, situation where you're running a, a, a prenatal uh, engram, right? That could, that could be when that happens. The person could just as easily go back into a past life as well at that point and start talking about when they got hit in the head with a cannonball in the Civil War, right? So, uh, you know, you never know what's going to come up. It really just depends on the person's imagination. So, um, but, but nobody's frowning on it either. Nobody's saying don't run prenatals or they're not, you know, don't do that. At the low level introductory Dianetic auditing services, 
uh, Scientologists will will think that's cute and that's nice and oh wow he ran a prenatal and that's about as much importance as is, as is placed on it. Larnaca LCA. Chris, what's your take on Hillsong Church getting Justin Bieber, Kanye West, and the like as celebrity church members and its exponential growth around the globe? In comparison to the hipster Hillsong cult, Scientology is rather pathetic and old-fashioned. Your thoughts? Yeah, apparently these days it's getting pretty hip to be Pentecostal and speak in tongues. This is, a, this is the new thing. Uh, amongst Justin Bieber fans, I'm sure, because Justin Bieber has embraced this Hillsong ministry uh, literally with both arms. Uh, there's some pastor, Carl something or other, who he's all buddy-buddy uh, with and hanging around with. And, um, and this pastor presents himself as a pretty interesting character. Um, looking into this a little bit, I saw some photos of him, and he looks more like a, a rock star or, or uh, you know, A or B list celeb than he does a pastor. Uh, and apparently this is, a, he's in New York or on the East Coast. And, uh, and he's hooked up with uh, another Hillsong pastor who's also doing this celebrity thing and, you know, posting on Instagram and Twitter and hanging around with celebrities. And uh, this is kind of the, you know, the, the hip thing to be doing for these guys. But the Hillsong Church itself is actually an Australian-based Pentecostal group with very strong biblical, uh, literal biblical teachings. Uh, they believe in uh, Christ as the Savior, literal interpretation of the Bible, and uh, speaking in tongues is a big thing for them. And uh, they are anti-abortion, and while they are anti-homosexuality according to Leviticus and the scriptures, they stress that they're not condemning homosexual people, right? Although I don't really know how those two things work in the real world. I think that's going to uh, depend a lot on the individual and their interpretation of, of just how far they're supposed to take Leviticus. So uh, that's what I know about the church. It doesn't look from its, from its large, you know, from what I read about it and the, 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 the it is large and it is growing. Um, I think, you know, a few hundred thousand members or something worldwide. Um, I don't get that it's a destructive cult as such. Um, I get that there have been troubles and issues with this group, and in fact its founder, uh, this guy something Houston, Frank Houston I think his name is, was actually kicked out of the leadership of the church in the year two, in 2000 because he was found to have uh, sexually molested or assaulted a seven-year-old, which is pretty bad. I mean, that's, that's disgusting. And uh, his son, Brian, is the one who's actually grown the church over the, the last many years. And, um, and I don't know how closely connected Brian Houston is with, you know, what's going on with Carl and Justin Bieber and Kanye and, and the Kardashians. Um, but I imagine he's probably like, you know, two thumbs up on that because that grows the ministry. And if there's, you know, anything that a, a ministry like these guys want, it's growth. And there's nothing that'll give you growth like celebrities, as we know from Tom Cruise, who actually did grow Scientology for a while before he started being completely wackadoodle. Um, you know, there was a—I've mentioned this before, but I'll just just uh, just to show the power of celebrity with with religion. With Tom Cruise, we were told one time that uh, that he had gone on Good Morning America or on a on a Today Show or something, and he had this was not the Matt Lauer, you know, you're glib, you're horrible, Matt sort of thing, but he had done a, a rather rational interview and had mentioned 
um, a book, Scientology, The Fundamentals of Thought, which is uh, an introductory book, a uh, survey of Scientology and you know, all in one volume. And, um, and he mentioned this book. He said, hey, look, if you want to know about Scientology, get this book, right? Well, that morning, from him saying that, there were something like 5,000 book orders or something that came to Bridge Publications. I mean, I, 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 for Scientology, that's an astronomical number of books to be sold in one morning, all these orders coming in, right? So, um, so that's kind of, you know, j they just drop one line in a talk show and you get this, you know, massive response uh, to, to that, right? Um, so, you know, Justin, Kanye, the Kardashians, I mean, these are major, major celebrities, right? And, uh, and if they start talking, you know, uh, Pentecostal ministries, then, then people are going to sign up and want to be part of that. Um, I don't really, you know, agree with any part of that. I don't agree with their teachings or beliefs, but I'm not going to, from what I know right now, I'm not going to condemn that group as a destructive cult because I don't have any evidence that that that's actually what's going on there. They just look like another religious group to me with kooky beliefs that I would never get behind or endorse. And that, and when it comes to the anti-abortion and uh, creationism and intelligent design push that these guys go for uh, in school, I think, I think that's destructive behavior. I think that's horrible and shouldn't be something that we see in schools. But you know, I'll, I'll, but I will draw a line in terms of uh, the the destructive cult aspect because I don't really see that there that group is fitting all the characteristics of such a group. Yo Joe eight five eight eight one four zero six. Just something I noticed. You speak against people like Alex Jones for fear mongering, then you do the same about the current individual in the White House. Granted, you don't have as many listeners as Jones and are not making as much money, and I know at one point you spoke out quite a lot against Trump. You seemed to have stepped away from politics a bit, but I don't watch all your videos, so I don't know. But how's that different? Not everybody buys into that point of view, so it's not a generally accepted fact that Trump and what he does is scary, so how is that not fear-mongering? All right, well, let's go ahead and take a look at what fear-mongering actually is, because I did use that term advisedly in, in regards to describing what Alex Jones does and David Icke does and other conspiracy theorists like, uh, oh, I don't know, David Avocado Wolf do. So let's be clear about this. Uh, the definition of fear-mongering or scaremongering is the spreading of frightening and exaggerated rumors of an impending danger or the habit or tactic of purposely and needlessly arousing public fear about an issue. This can take the form of psychological manipulation that uses fear-based tactics, including exaggeration and usually repetition, to influence the public in order to achieve a desired outcome. So, what I do on my channel is education, and I do the best job that I know how to do in order to bring facts to people's attention so that they can make informed and rational decisions using critical thinking. That is what I am all about on this channel. I am not selling products based on the stories that I tell or the information that I uh, give um, 
in other words, I'm not selling vitamins, I'm not selling supplements, I'm not selling survival gear, I'm not selling uh, interests in gold or silver or alternative forms of, of money or exchange or something like that. I'm not selling bomb shelters. In other words, I'm not selling things that are based on having the idea that you need to be afraid of your future, you need to be afraid of whether you're going to be alive tomorrow or not because of um, this information I'm giving you and therefore the solution to the information I'm giving you is to buy what I'm selling. That is what Alex Jones does and if you don't believe me, well, check out John Oliver's show last week on HBO from uh, last week tonight where he laid out exactly how Alex Jones does what he does. That's fear-mongering. That is creating an emotional state in the viewer of fear, you're purposefully scaring people with exaggerated, untrue, fabricated information, right? Which is another point on this. I don't lie. I, everything I tell you is true to the best possible way I can check it or research it or know about it. And most of what I talk about is from my own personal experience and my own knowledge from Scientology, uh, where I, you know, if I'm not an expert in Scientology, I don't know what I would be an expert in, right? So if I can't talk intelligently about that and give you the factual information about what the material says and what they do within the church with that material, you know, that's, that is something I can speak authoritatively on. I try to bring that same level of research to other things that I talk about. The reason I went off of politics uh, to a great degree on my podcast is because I found myself getting into stories and talking about news and, and politics, which is a very subjective, opinionated, not fact-based field, and it's very, very difficult to do uh, factual reporting on it on a timely basis because usually a politician or, or a, a news story or something will come out and we don't have all the information, we don't have all the facts, and we're not going to have all the information and facts for months. And yet you got to make commentary and talk about it and give opinions on it right now. And those opinions and commentary can often be wrong because the full investigation hasn't been done yet. And you could be, you know, if let's say, you know, you're talking about a crime that was just reported on and you're making opinions and judgments about the guilt or innocence of a police officer who shot somebody or somebody who shot a police officer. Either way, you're making snap judgments not based on complete information. And I saw that happening and I went, hmm. I don't want to be doing that because I, I, I realize that it takes a lot of time to get to the truth of what happened in what looks like a very seemingly easy to see incident. No, there can be all kinds of complications around those things. And in politics, it gets even crazier. And so I thought, all right, let's, let's kind of get away from this and let's get more back into things that I can be on firm, solid ground on. And that's what I try to focus my attention in and interests in and uh, and then on my podcast of course I'll have guests who are authorities in their field or know something about what they're talking about and and so I you know uh, ask them questions and get their feedback and their information and that's not my opinion that's theirs right and I and we bounce back and forth on on some of those chats and and, and interviews that I have I mean the only products I'm 
selling on my channel here are shirts <laughs> that say, you know, funny random things on them and a book about my uh, about Scientology, a critical analysis of the subject itself. Those are the only products I'm I'm selling and those are not solutions, those things I'm I'm putting out there as a as really an attempt to sort of supplement my income. Those things are not, you know, solutions to a dangerous environment. Right? I'm not creating fear and terror and then selling something to solve that, okay? And as far as, um, you know, my dire concerns and opinions about Donald Trump, well, every one of them has come true. And to say that the majority of the United States does not concur with me is to live in a fantasy world because Donald Trump's approval rating as a statistic is one metric is lowest ever for any president six months in. Uh, the man is doing a horrible job and I have nothing good to say about him. So, in fact, I compare him to L. Ron Hubbard as a, as a destructive cult leader, really. You know, that's kind of my opinion about Donald Trump and people who follow him. So, you know, yeah, maybe that's, uh, maybe those are harsh words, but that's what I think and I have a pretty good basis for comparison <laughs> to make that. Uh, assessment. So anyway, that's my take on that. John Stewart. I was in the low-demand thought reform organization for 14 years. I still have dreams about it. I wake up and it feels exactly like I've been at one of their meetings or other gatherings. Do you have Scientology dreams? What must that be like? Yeah, I do still have uh, nightmares from time to time. I had one last week. Um, they're less and less frequent as time goes on but they can be pretty vivid. And most of the time they follow along the lines of me being back in Scientology, back in the Sea Org. And then during the course of the dream, it's kind of funny, I, I, you know, I'll just share this with you guys. Um, I, I find myself back in the Sea Org or back in that situation in Los Angeles. And then I find myself realizing how awful it is and that I don't want to be there and I want to get out and then proceeding to leave or trying to get away and then proceeding to try to stop me. And usually at some point along the line of them trying to stop me, I wake up uh, because they, you know, do various things to you know, physically and mentally and emotionally try to, you know, manipulate me to not leave. So, uh, so they're pretty, they're, they're not fun. Those are not fun experiences to have. And, I, and I've woken up in a, you know, bit of a not good place sometimes when that happens. But I think, uh, you know, I think it's getting better as time goes on. And uh, I think that, you know, uh, just to kind of put this out there, I think a lot of the, the love and support and, and uh, you know, good well wishes and stuff that I've gotten from you guys has helped a lot in the, in the recovery process for me. So, um, so anyway, I didn't, you know, really bring this question up just to, to say that, but I uh, just realized in answering it that that's kind of part of the recovery <laughs> for this. So anyway, that, yeah, that still happens. And I think that's a symptom or indicator of a kind of a low level PTSD. Uh, I think I might've experienced, I don't put myself in the same realm of PTSD as combat veterans or something like that, but I think it's, I think it's there. And, um, and I've had, you know, some professional advice that has sort of indicated that that might be the case. So I'm dealing with that. And, and, uh, and this channel and, and giving, this, giving this information to you guys is part of that. So there you go. Well, it's time for Flash Answers. Orgrat1003. 
Do you intend to write any more books? Because I can imagine you writing a fascinating autobiography. Uh, yes, I do have two books that I am planning on writing. This year has gone by so quickly and I have barely touched this book on the RPF that I want to do, which is my next book. It will get written. Um, it's been a little bit of a process actually, confronting some of the things as I was just answering in my last question, um, to, to talk about the RPF and to, and, to, and to do it justice and do the book I really want to do on that subject. Is, um, there's a lot of work still to do on that, but I've gotten a lot of nice research done this year on it. And then the other book is um, uh, that I'm looking at doing after that would have to do with uh, children being raised in the Sea Organ in, in Scientology and, and kind of cover that whole topic and subject. So those are my plans right now. They are going out, it's rolling out a bit slower than I uh, had hoped, um, but it is happening and those are ongoing pieces of work that uh, are going to get done. Ocean Mariup. What supposedly happened to Xenu? Wouldn't he be immortal himself? Do upper-level Scientologists ever worry that he'd come back and undo all their hard work? <laughs> okay, good old Xenu. Apparently he's uh, ensconced in some mountain fortress prison somewhere with an infinite battery keeping a force field around him. That's the one line from Hubbard that we have as to where, you know, Xenu is. Maybe that's on Earth. I, I think that's supposed to be somewhere on planet Earth, but it could be elsewhere. You know, I, I don't know if it was... I don't know that it has to be on Earth. I'd have to look that up or dig deep into to finding that particular piece of information out. But apparently he is alive and well. And uh, yes, he would be um, immortal or nearly immortal because back when Xenu was around, People lived for, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years uh, in their bodies. They, they just lasted and lasted. And, and it was part of the whole OT3 Xenu incident that we got bodies that grow old and die you know, within 70 or 80 years. So, Spike Robinson. Hey, Chris, does the Church of Scientology have its own in-house framing unit for all those certificates? Their own trophy-making place? Yes and yes. They have a certificate printing facility, which is part of the international dissemination organization that they have with those great big printing presses that, that print all the org magazines. There's another section there that prints all the org certificates. I don't know if it frames them or not, but it does print them. And that is, I have seen the church hand make uh, awards for people, although I think they might also commission some of those big, huge awards. Um, out, out of house, you know, they might outsource some of those too. But, but then again, it wouldn't surprise me if every one of them was handmade inside the church because it's cheaper for them to do it that way. Barbara Miller. Chris, I was watching a TV show long since canceled from London online today, and the person being interviewed was O.J. Simpson, post Nicole's murder. At one time, he was riding along with the interviewer, and when asked, how do you manage to deal with things now? Do you meditate or anything? O.J. said, well, I have been clear several times, and it has helped some. It's a Scientology thing. Did you ever know of him actually being a Scientologist at all, or maybe this was just another one of his lies? Yeah, as far as I know, O.J. Simpson was never connected with Scientology in any way. If he was, it was totally, totally kept under the radar and very, very uh, closeted, um, because I never, you know, I never heard of that. And of course, you know, after, you know, his murder situation, I'm sure the church would have shut down anything ever connecting him with Scientology if he was connected and probably would have shredded his PC folders. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's just a joke, but. 
Okay, folks, that's the end of our show for this week. I hope you found some of these answers interesting, informative, and uh, entertaining. As always, if you have any feedback, comments, criticism, questions, leave it in the notes comments section below. I will see it. I will read it. Uh, and many times I will respond to it as, as I can. Uh, thanks a lot for coming around, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.